that's just to get your attention. Uh, my name is John and I'm an alcoholic. I've been called many things in my life. Never have I been called a star. I mean, get a picture of that. Can't you see it? People born, finishing college and saying, I can achieve stardom if I can just get into Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> well, for you two new people, I have some good news and I have some bad news. <laughs> the good news is, is that you never need to drink or use or be alone one day at a time for the rest of your life. The bad news is, is that in order to have that happen, you're going to have to change everything you've ever thought or believed. <laughs> you all remember in your first year how you knew everything? Remember that? And then you got to be about four or five years sober and you, you knew a little bit less. And, and then you hit double digits and you knew a whole lot less. And... and uh, I got 14 and a half years and I'm stupid. <laughs> and there's probably people sitting in the room that are sober a lot longer than me and they're really ignorant. <laughs> but we're still here. And the reason I bring that up is uh, I am about to tell you absolutely everything I know about how to get sober and stay that way. I guess I'll just go ahead and do it. Uh, I am sober today by the grace of God and the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. And now that I've told you that, that leaves me with a terrible problem. <laughs> the problem is, what the hell am I going to do for the next hour? And I only know two jokes and I can't tell them in mixed company. So I guess I better do what it says in this... Uh, in this book here, where it says that in a general way I should tell you what it used to be like and what happened and what it's like now. Let's see, what it used to be like. Uh, well, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, within about 90 days I met this guy and he became my sponsor and he and I began to talk at coffee and so forth. And after about the third conversation, he said, John, he said, in your case, we're going to have to redo the first step. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, the first step says we admit we're powerless over alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable. But in your case, it is you are powerless over alcohol and your life had become a joke. <laughs> and, and he was right, you know. Um, it's real interesting. Uh, in the last, in the period of time that I've been sober, it's kind of like alcoholism as a disease has kind of been creeping out of the closet, you know, and, and we have it on television now, and we got books about alcoholism, and we got books about children of alcoholics, and all this stuff is going along. And I read it all, uh, and, and it has helped me a great deal with my pitch. Uh, because today I realize that I came from what I have come to understand is a very typical family uh, in the United States. Uh, on the one hand, I have my mother who is still living. Uh, nine days ago, she and her twin sister celebrated their 80th birthday. And um, I need to tell you about my mother. Um, my mother is your Catholic's Catholic. Okay? 
I mean, my mother is a convert Catholic, and that's the worst kind, because they did it by choice, you know. And when I was growing up, my mother kept telling me and teaching me and showing me by her actions how the world was supposed to be. She was a, a really non-judgmental, very tolerant, very loving, giving person, and she still is. And on the other side of the coin, we had my father, who uh, used to uh, drink a little. And uh, the first, I don't know, five, six, seven years of my life, everything seemed to be fine. Uh, I seemed to be happy, or what little bits of it I remember, I was happy. But then somewhere along the line, things began to change. And I can remember as clearly as if it were today, the first time that it dawned on me that things weren't just exactly right at home. And it is because I was awakened late at night, uh, you know, by my parents arguing. Now, I couldn't tell you what they were arguing about or anything like that because I was down the hall, around the corner, and in my room. But I could tell from their tone of voice that they were not happy. And And this... The number of these arguments and the frequency of these arguments, be, you know, became closer and closer together, and I became more and more confused. And a few more years went by, and I was like maybe eight or nine years old, and my father started to become real violent, and he always used to hit my older brother and I from the neck up. And I can remember when I was like maybe, oh, I guess it must have been nine uh, my mother had me in the Catholic schools, you know, and I was a reasonably good student, and I listened to what they had to say, and I, I believed that there was a God, and, and I tried to do everything the way it was taught to me. And I can remember for two years, night after night after night, sitting in a chair in the living room of our house, praying to God as I had been taught to pray to God, to have him remove my father's drinking. And, of course, you all know what happened. You know, he just drank more because we have a progressive disease. Uh, you two new friends need to know that it is a progressive disease. And if you leave here and start to drink again, it will only get worse. It will never, ever, ever get better. But in any case, sir, my father kept drinking, you know, and, and uh, I kind of began to... Uh, disassociate myself from the God that they were trying to teach me about because if this God was all the things they said, why then he'd certainly do this this thing that needed to be done. And he didn't. And the years went by, my dad kept getting more and more violent. And, uh, uh, you know, it's real interesting. I, I was very, very confused growing up. That's the one word that I can use to describe the feelings that I had was I was confused most of the time. Um, I don't know about you guys, but my dad always picked two in the morning or later to come home and have these arguments, okay? And so we'd always be awakened in the middle of the night and consequently didn't get much sleep, consequently didn't study much, consequently didn't get good grades, and then we'd come home and the grades would be da bad, and then we'd get smacked around some more, and it was just totally confusing to me. Uh, my mother's behavior after a long enough period of time started to get confusing, uh, because we used to have to have these arguments in the kitchen. And the very first thing my mother would do is immediately rush to the kitchen window and slam it shut. And she'd kind of turn around and look at us, and, and the communication was, my God, the neighbors might find out. 
You know, and I was sitting there really confused because my dad had just parked the car in the front lawn, you know. <laughs> so I kind of assumed they knew, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, I remember when I was maybe 12, something like that, my dad, for no apparent reason, reached over and smacked me upside the head, and my head went over and hit the door jam, and I still have a two-and-a-half-inch scar here in the back of my head, and, and, the, and the blood is coming down my neck, and it's getting on my shoulder, and, and my mom is crying, and my brother's scared, and the place is up for grabs, you know. And, and But by now, I'm starting to get John Wayne on this deal, you know. Um, you know, I'm standing there, and my little lip is quivering, and there's a little bit of water here in my eyes, but what was in my head was... I'm not going to trust anybody anymore, because when you do, they can hurt you. And you know, a funny thing happened right then. A funny thing happened, but it didn't dawn on me for about uh, 18 more years. <laughs> the funny thing that happened to me is, is that from that moment forward in my life, I never once got to choose how it was going to be, because I had already chosen you know, I mean, this is uh, this is in the uh, 1950s we're talking about here, and this is back when they used to have the gleam toothpaste invisible plastic shield. You remember that thing coming down out, and Bullet Bob Gibson would stand there and fire fastballs at it or whatever it was, you know. And that's exactly what I did. I made an unconscious decision to not trust anybody. And I guarantee you that if you practice something long enough, you'll make it so. You will make it so. And in my household, I don't know about yours, but in my household, the way that my brother and I were always punished if we weren't beat is the thing that we liked the most, whatever it was, is be the thing that would be taken away from us. And so I learned how to not show on my face anything. I, I figured out this is how you fake them out. You know, you just do this. And I spent the next 18 years of my life doing this. Because then they didn't know, and then they couldn't hurt you. You know, and, and by 12, 13 years of age, I was absolutely convinced that the world was a hostile place where I had to protect and defend myself at all times. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, well, I'll get around to that a little later on. Because today, you know, today I get to see children grow up my own and friends of mine in Alcoholics Anonymous that are sober and I get to see what it's like for children to walk around the house and not be walking on eggshells all the time and I think if there is any one gift that I am more grateful for than any other it is that neither one of my children have ever seen me drink neither one of my children have ever seen the story that I'm going to tell you and one day at a time, God willing, and I know God is, the only thing, the question is always me, <laughs> you know, I know that one day at a time I'm never going to take another drink as long as I live. Because I have never, ever forgotten what it felt like the week before I got here. Don't you ever forget what it felt like the week before you got here. And you don't have to leave. The other thing I want to tell you two people, rest of you guys, take a break. <laughs> there are going to be lots and lots and lots of people that will come up to you and they're going to share their experience, their strength, and their hope. And from time to time they're going to forget and they're going to share their opinion. 
And I just want to tell you that their opinion is worth exactly what you're going to pay for it. The big zip. And if you really want to leg up on this deal, you read this little baby right here from cover to cover, okay, by Monday. See, the reason that this is so important, the reason that reading this big book is so important is, is that until you've read it, you are absolutely at the mercy of every insane opinion you're going to hear. And there's some real strange ones floating around out there. I, I just want to tell you. But in case you can't get this done between now and Monday, anybody that offers anything to you that extends more than one day at a time, don't listen. We do not do anything around here six months at a time. We don't do anything around here a year at a time. We do things one flaming day at a time. And in no short order, you're going to discover that one day at a time is far too long anyway. <laughs> you're going to have to break that down real, real tight. Anyway, uh, back to this story of woe here. Um, well, I did get revenge, by the way. When I was 15, this mine. Uh, the summer between my 14th and 15th year, this amazing thing happened. It's kind of like I went to sleep, and I woke up eight inches taller, 45 pounds heavier, and meaner than shit. <laughs> and one night, my dad came home yet one more time, ranting, raving, and this and that, and threw this bowl of hot potatoes at my mother. And it was just, it was just, I mean, it was like everything was in slow motion. The circumstances were right. You know how the, like the wall comes down and then it meets the floor and there's this nice little 90 degree angle there where you can get your right foot planted in there real good, you know. And I just kind of reached over and I dropped him like a bad habit. I mean, we broke his jaw and broke his lower plate, severed a nerve in the side of his face that was never the same again. And my older brother took everything he owned and we put it in three suitcases, and we put the suitcases on the front porch, and we put him on the front porch, and we called a cab. And that ain't no way for a 15-year-old to be. Because the most surprising thing of that entire night is I thought, I thought after I drilled him, you know, I thought I was going to feel good. And I didn't. And then I thought, well, I'm going to feel bad. But I didn't. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me that I didn't feel anything. And so I went in the bedroom went to sleep. And by 15 years of age, I was this dead thing inside. Hell, I hadn't taken a drink yet. I hadn't even had a drink yet. That came the next year. <laughs> you know, I was like 16 years old. And uh, before that time, had I not been into jockdom, I probably would have drank sooner. But I'm born and raised in downstate Illinois. And uh, I heard a, hey, hey. You know, you can talk about your Irish disease. You can talk about all that stuff. But you, in downstate Illinois, for those of you who've never been there, Jesus is number one. <clears throat> Basketball is number two, except on game days where they switch. 
right? And so I was in the jockdom. And so, and, and you know, the real truth is the years have gone by and I've looked back at it. I think the reason that I played football and basketball and baseball and track and all that is not so much that I cared about football, basketball, baseball, or track, but it was they practiced after school. And I didn't have to go home. And it just so happened that I was pretty good at it. That's all. It wasn't anything I set out to do. It was just a way to not have to go home and put up with that conflict and that confusion and all that business. Anyway, when I was 16 years old, there were uh, five of us in the back of this old, uh, I hate to tell you this, but it's true. Uh, There were five of us in the back of this brand new 1958 Chevrolet station wagon. Um, and we had stolen a bottle of Seagram 7 from somebody's dad, and we'd stored it, I don't know why we did this, but we stored it outside in the snow all day long. I guess we must have figured that it would be better if it was cold or whatever. And uh, so anyway, we get this bottle of whiskey, and we drive down to this baseball park, and we park there, and they crack the lid off of this bottle, and it goes around the car the first time, you know, and everybody takes a big pull like John Wayne did, you know. And I do not ever remember John Wayne choking and gagging, but uh, <laughs> that's what we all did, you know. And, th- and then the bottle came around the next time, and it got to me, and uh, a miracle had happened. You know? And you've all heard this miracle before. You, I wouldn't be surprised by whatever one of you in the room hadn't experienced this very miracle that I'm about to tell you about. <laughs> it's the, I call it the warmth miracle. <laughs> You know, it's like this warm, wonderful uh, sensation kind of worked its way down my esophagus here, and it it got to my guts, you know, where I'd been holding all these feelings that I hadn't been showing anybody, you know, and it got down there, and it just kind of spread out, and God, I mean, for the very first time in my life, everything was all right. I mean, everything was all right. You know what, this is really funny. You know what my next thought was? So this is why my dad drinks. <laughs> I've been confused about that for years, you know. Why does this seemingly intelligent, sensitive, rational, nice guy drink this stuff when he knows after two of them go in his mouth, he turns into an idiot? Well, now I knew why, you know. And I, it would not be true. Um, I did not you know, after this first drink, uh, become a daily drinker or something like that. That's just not the way it was. Um, I became the kid out of the group who would always suggest that if we were going somewhere, we drive by the Black Cat liquor store to get some beer or some whiskey. You know, I, I don't know the name of the Black Cat liquor store in Santa Barbara, but I'm sure they got one. You know, that's the one where they drive in, you know, and if you're kind of tall enough to get your hand over the side, the window of the car and get it over to the counter, they'll sell you anything. And, and I became that kid. Uh, the first night that I drank back to the Chevrolet station wagon, there was an interesting pattern that got set up in my life the very first night. And, and the pattern was is that I, when the bottle came around the second time it got to me, it got no further. You know, I've discovered the elixir of life here I was not going to share, you know. Um, and so what happened was, is I kept drinking this bottle, and pretty soon I experienced my first ever blackout. Now, I didn't know that's what it was at the time. I also, in a very short time, experienced my first ever uh, pass out. 
A little bit later, I experienced my first ever come to and puke. (laughs) And a little bit later, I experienced being protected by someone else. And those are the four things that happened the first night that I drank. Now, you have to understand, this was in March. Okay, the month was March. And what happened was, is I had this blackout, and then we went to a party where I passed out. And that's also where I came to and puked. And it was on the living room carpet of the Vermilion County Sheriff's house. But... Two days from then, we were going to be playing a basketball game in the Illinois State High School basketball tournament. And the sheriff had a bunch of money bet on that game. And so my father wasn't told, my mother wasn't told, the coach wasn't told. The sheriff actually called up my mother and said, Now, your son has been over here to our house at this party, and he has obviously eaten something that did not agree with him. And so we're going to keep him here overnight, and he'll be in school tomorrow, and everything's going to be fine. See? And I'd like to tell you that that pattern of those four things changed over the next 15 years, but that's not true. (laughs) Every time, every time, we'd have a blackout, we'd have a pass out, we'd come to and puke, see? And somebody'd be right there to protect you. Um, I mean, it never changed. I mean, we cut time time warp now. Cut to 15 years later, right? Um, 14 years later. I'm in Bozeman, Montana. I'm in the nightclub business. I've got two of them, as a matter of fact. One of them in Bozeman. One of them in Great Falls. Um, and I'm doing my thing, you know. I'm just drinking like a pig every night because that's what I do. Uh, well, one morning I wake up and my head says, Okay, John, let's get up out of this bed and rush out there one more time and just kick butt. And my body said, You go ahead, pal, but the rest of us are staying here. And I laid in this bed for two hours, scared, terrified. I could not move. I could breathe and I could blink. And just to leap ahead real quick so you don't get nervous, that what had happened is, is that I had drank myself into a condition known as alcoholic paralysis. And I've got a couple heads going up and down here. If you've not ever had that experience and you want it, <laughs> I can tell you how to get it. I mean, you just leave here right now and go to the nearest bar and drink. And just keep right at it. And don't you dare eat anything other than what you find on counters in bars. Popcorn, peanut, real nutritious stuff like that. And you don't ever sleep. You just pass out. And when you come to, you get right back at it. And if you'll just keep on that for about 30 days, you too can experience alcoholic paralysis. It's wonderful. Now, and as I was sitting there, or laying there actually, before I was discovered, it dawned on me that the night before I'd had another blackout, because I didn't have a clue how I got home. I presume that I had passed out because it had been years since I had actually gone to sleep. And I knew that I had come to and puked because I could smell it. And finally, my partner in the saloon business came home and found me like this, and he quick called the hospital and the emergency squad, and he quick called this doctor who was a friend of mine that I drank with every night, 
And the doctor quick closed up his practice and got in a car and rushed to the hospital to get there ahead of me to have me admitted into the hospital for acute fatigue. And he didn't know it, but boy, was he right. <laughs> because boy, was I tired. <laughs> you know? So it just never changed all those years. And then, <clears throat> let's see here. Well, I got time. I got time. I'll throw you in a story. You know, in this book, for you new people, in this book here, it talks about alcoholics. And it says that they're emotionally sensitive. And it says that they're, uh, uh, well, it says they're extremely sensitive, emotionally immature, and from time to time have been known to be grandiose in their behavior. <laughs> uh, matter of fact, I was just re -re recently rereading uh, some of the history of Alcoholics Anonymous and some of the history of the Oxford groups, and I'm not... I'm not but totally convinced but what we might not have been the Oxford groups to this day had it not been for one of our co-founders who from time to time was a little grandiose in his behavior. Uh, but nevertheless, um, I want to tell you this one story that qualifies me to be here. Okay? Um, and from this one story, you will know that I was highly sensitive Emotionally immature and grandiose in my behavior. Uh, this is when we were living in Montana. And I don't... Has anybody been there? Oh, man, look at this. Now, there's your real reason for alcoholism. <laughs> Montana. Uh, and if you've not been there, in Montana, you drink with both hands and both feet, and that's normal. It's not until you begin to lick it out of a saucer that they look at you funny. But anyway, in Montana, because there was nothing else to do, we used to go on these, what we called a toot. Now, a toot is where you would go and rent a car. You don't ever go on a toot in your car. You rent a car. And you get a bunch of guys together, and you get a bunch of booze, and you get it out on the interstate, and you aim it somewhere. And there was no daytime speed limit in the state of Montana during the period of time I'm talking about, so you aim it, and you go fast, <laughs> and you drink. Well, it just worked out this one time. There was like five of us in the car, and each one of us had just broken up with her. You know, the one that was really the one, but you didn't know it until after you'd already broke up with her. Oh, it was painful, painful. And as we were driving along, <laughs> well, it really wasn't that painful because all of us had our substitute already lined up before you let go of the other one, you know. But in any case, <laughs> we're driving along and we're coming up with this song that would somehow best represent how we were feeling. And this went on from verse after verse, stanza after stanza. And finally, about oh, 250 miles down the road, we decided we were ready to practice this song. So we pulled off in a little town called Drummond, Montana, which has an off-ramp, four stores, three of them are bars, and a post office, and then got an on-ramp to go back onto the freeway. So we pull off in this big city, and we go into this bar, great big up people, and we go in and kind of take over their stage, and we begin to practice our song. The title of which was, You Done Stomped on My Heart and Crushed That Sucker Flat. <laughs> now, is that extremely emotional? Huh? 
Well, <laughs> might even qualify in under grandiose behavior. Um, emotionally immature, however, came a little later when we walked out of the bar and there were all these blue cars sitting out there with these lights going around and all these guys standing around doing this, <laughs> you know. And we're going, what's the problem? <laughs> yeah, that was it. Day after day after day, that was it. And it sounds great, and it sounds funny, and the only problem was that I was never laughing, you know? And I mean, you know, it's kind of like even today when I go out, my wife and I will go out for some occasion or other, and we'll go to some bar or whatever, and you, you can always pick out the alcoholics if you're listening. Because they're the ones that when they're laughing, if you really listen, you can hear them crying. They're just lost. They don't have a damn clue what to do. You know. I actually had a 12-step call day before yesterday. Amazing. Uh, any of you been around a long time, uh, when I first got sober, boy, 12-step calls, you had them all the time. Just all the time. And um, Christ, when I was new, they used to send us out to 12-step imaginary people. You know. <laughs> Shit, we'd bring them back. No problem. <laughs> We go out there, and, we go out there and capture them and zip, bring them back, sober them up, no problem. Uh, but over the years, that has kind of changed. It seems like nowadays, almost everybody that comes into AA comes through a hospital or whatever. And I'm not for or against. I'm just saying that's the way it is. I actually got a 12-step call a couple of days ago um, from a guy who'd gotten my number from somebody, and he called up and he wanted to know what was the matter with his life. And his, you know, he was losing his job. His wife was leaving him. I mean, the whole world is crashing down around him. And I immediately say, well, gee, do you drink? And he says, well, just a little bit. And I said, well, how much? You know, and he started telling me. And, you know, it was just a little bit. And then he said, hold on just a second. I'll be right back. He put the phone down and I heard this. And he got back on the phone and he was talking faster. <laughs> and do you know what he wanted me to do? He wanted me to talk him into sobriety. So I did something I swore to God I'd never do. I did what a lot of old timers did when I came around. I said to him, pal, you're not ready. Call me when you're ready. And I hung up the phone. And that qualifies as one of the ten hardest things I've ever had to do in the last 14 and a half years. But I know that I can't carry the message until somebody's ready to hear it. See? And I know in this book it says that we shouldn't waste... Uh, so much as ten minutes on somebody who doesn't want what we got. And actually, I'm kind of glad about it, too, because I I don't understand a lot of times. Uh, well, I just drank. You know, I drank. Um, there's a couple things about that. <laughs> when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, oh, for you two new people, it's going to take you at least 30 days to figure out the language. <laughs> We talk, they talk in shorthand around here. They, they use strange words like relationship. I never had a relationship before I got here. 
I just had a bunch of old ladies, you know what I mean? I never had a resentment. I didn't know what that was. I had to go to a lot of meetings and listen carefully to figure out that somebody was pissed off at somebody else. And so they wanted to call out a resentment. I, when I, my first 30 days, <laughs> I had the fear of economic insecurity. And so I was trying to think up businesses and I came on one right away. I knew it'd be a big deal in Alcoholics Anonymous to call rent a resentment. <laughs> That's where you tell me your resentment, and I worry about it all day, and then send you a bill. But no, <laughs> nobody would go for it, see? But you gotta go to lots of meetings. Nowadays, they say 90 meetings in 90 days. So you go to 90 meetings in 90 days. See? That's it. It's very simple around here. They tell you what to do, and you do it. It's very simple. Uh, and in the book, it's very simple. Uh, don't listen to anybody. Just read this right here. You know, and you go to the first step, and you go to the second step, you go to the third step, and you come to the fourth step, and it says we aggressively and vigorously and happily leap into doing the fourth step, and you just do that, and uh, and everything's going to be all right. There's going to be no problem. Uh, back to the story here. Um, oh yeah, I was I was a <laughs> I was a neophyte drinker when I left you. Um, in the next several years in high school, I became expert. Um, when I was 18, I graduated from high school and I made a mistake in judgment. I uh, joined the Marine Corps. <coughs> About two years later, Lyndon Johnson made a mistake in judgment. <laughs> For you really young people, I just want to tell you that Vietnam was not a rock group. <laughs> it was a place, you know. Well, it is. It's still there. It was the... It was the greenest place I've ever seen. I mean, like green. Like that lady's shirt right over there. It was green. And it stunk. And I was there for 17 months. And Budweiser saved my life. <laughs> you bet your life it did. Um, they used to take these ocean-going barges, and they would fill them all up with Budweiser and push them across the ocean, and they'd park them on the Saigon River or Red Beach or various places. And if you had a little card that showed that you were the NCO in charge of a group of people, which I was, uh, they would give you two six-packs of beer per person per day for free. And I was in charge of this little group of 12 people, so I got, I got to pick whoever I wanted. I recruited Christians, I'm telling you. <laughs> I went out there and got Christians. Bible reading Christians, okay? Cause they didn't drink, you know, you, you've all got to drill here. Um, you got to be really smart to be an alcoholic. <laughs> no dummies allowed here, that's it. It's, uh, my problem was is I couldn't carry beer with me all the time, and so as when I got introduced to marijuana, uh, I smoked some, and it hurt my throat. You know, I'd draw it down in my throat, and it'd cough, and it hurt. So I thought, this isn't going to work. So what I did is I used to take Copenhagen can, and I'd sweep out about three-quarters of the Copenhagen, and I'd take some marijuana and mash it all up, you know, and then put it in there. And I put about a quarter of a shot of brandy in there so it all stick together. 
And I'll just guarantee you, you put a little pinch of that crap between your cheek and gum, <laughs> you can go anywhere you want to go. <laughs> and, and nobody, but nobody's going to give you a hard time because you got that white ring in your coat pocket, I mean your shirt pocket here, so they can see it's a Copenhagen can and they just think you're some old redneck from somewhere that's dipped snuff, you know. And that's how I survived 17 months. My daughter, uh, and I were driving up here, and uh, she was asking me about the war. And uh, I've never known what to say about that. Because um, the, the real truth for me is that, you know, you've heard it now. I did the war, and uh, and that you've heard how I survived it, you know. Uh, I survived it by being drunk every night, unless we were working at night. I mean, you got to understand, you can't work in a war and be drunk at the same time. That's not real smart. But <laughs> at any moment that you are that you have off, you just stay drunk or you stay loaded, and that's how you live, you know. Uh, I don't know how we got on to this. Anyway, uh, in the last couple of years, the Vietnam War has become popular. There's little films popping up every other minute. Any of you seen those, some of those films? Um well, they're all a bunch of crap. But nevertheless, uh, what I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous is was more adequately portrayed in a movie called Hamburger Hill than any of the others. Uh, and, and, and that wasn't even a very good movie, and it was not very accurate at all. But there was one sentence in there that they kept using over and over and over and over again. And that is, every time something happened that was remotely feeling-oriented, the sentence was, it don't mean nothing. It don't mean nothing. I mean, you see your best friend get popped right between the running lights, you know, and uh, you start to have a feeling, and right, right followed behind that feeling is, what well, don't mean nothing. It don't mean nothing. And you know an interesting thing? If you really, really practice at it don't mean nothing long enough, it don't. Nothing means nothing. And then I came back to the United States, and what I'm about to say is really going to sound a little strange, but it, but when I came back to the United States is when the Vietnam War started for me. You know. It was like, you know, you, you kind of spend time in those kind of situations, and the old survival computer operates at maximum efficiency. You know, it's kind of like uh, if you've ever had a near miss in an auto accident or something, you know, zoom, boy, and the old, the old computer just really works. And, and you've been living in a situation where you've been on high operating skill for day after day after day after day after day. And you come back to the United States, and the very first thing that you hit with is your own frustration and irritation at the lack of awareness in people just walking down the street. You, you see that they're going to trip on the curb about seven steps before. They never see it. They just keep on going to trip on the curb. And it just grinds your chops, you know. And, uh, and then the people, you know, it's like the people. Uh, and I'm not going to get into this. The bottom line on it is, is that the, the, In my opinion, the way we treated Vietnam veterans in this country is the single most unconscionable thing that has ever happened in American history. 
And, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to live. I, didn't, I actually tried to be a human being. I actually tried to come back. I went to college. You know, I was going to do what everybody does, you know. And I tried to go to school, and I showed up for class, and I took my notebook, you know, and all this crap, you know. And I just didn't fit there, you know. I just didn't fit. And um, it was like my solution to everything, everything, was what I'd been living for the last couple of years. That was my solution to everything. guy lipped off to me in a bar one night in Bloomington, Illinois, and my solution was to try and rip his throat out. Had there not been another guy there that did the nom and hit me in the side of the head with a Schlitz bottle and knocked me out, that guy would be history today, and I wouldn't be standing here today. You know? I mean, it was like, in sobriety, folks, <laughs> I, had this, I had this cat. I had a dog and a cat. I had the dog for uh, 14 years, and I had the cat for 10 years. And in sobriety, the cat died. And I kind of come home, and I found the cat. You know, stiff. And I just, you know, I just reached over and picked the cat up and got a garbage bag and put him in a garbage bag and went out to the little dumpster and threw him in a dumpster. And I went to a meeting that night and I was telling people, oh, my cat died. And they said, well, oh, God, that must have been painful. I said, don't mean nothing. They said, what'd you do? I said, well, I picked him up, put him in a garbage bag, threw him in a dumpster. And everybody looked at me weird. Everybody started treating me funny. I'll never forget it. It's the only time I've ever been treated funny in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had this sponsor, God love him. He come and he put his arm around me. I am not going to apologize for being a human being. If you got a problem with what I'm doing, that's your problem. <clears throat> he came and put his arm around me and he told me that I was only doing what I'd been taught to do. And that the next time something like that happened, I might call him and he'd give me another option. This is the strangest pitch I've delivered in a long time. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just all over the place here, folks. Sorry. You know, it's like I come to, I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and uh, when I arrived here, you know, I, I, you're, I hope you're kind of getting a sense that I was not wrapped real tight when I showed up. <laughs> you know, and, well, it's worse than that. Uh, <laughs> I showed up at Alcoholics Anonymous and I had this below the hip length Levi jacket, you know, and I carried a 38 pistol back here in the small of my back. And I told you my name was something other than what I told you it was today for about the first three months, you know. And I spent a lot of time leaning against walls where it was safe and, and, uh, and they kept saying get phone numbers and I, there wasn't a way on the, on God's earth that I could have got phone numbers for anybody. I didn't trust anybody to let them get within arm's reach of me. And that boy, I was sick. <laughs> but anyway, um, in uh, November of 1974, God made it rain for 31 straight days just to save my life. <laughs> you don't believe it? You go to the newspaper, check it out. Rain for 31 straight days in November of 1974. And that's not important to anybody in this room but me. It's because I, I got a sponsor as a result of this. 
There's this guy, uh, he was in the landscaping business. And this guy never, ever, ever, ever came to noon meetings unless it rained and he couldn't work. And for 31 days in a row, it rained. And for 31 days in a row, there was an empty seat next to me. And for 31 days in a row, this guy sat down next to me. And he was like, uh, you know, in the big book, it talks about we will achieve emotional stability. And I mean, this guy just, he was a cruiser in sobriety. You know what I mean? He was an old timer, you know. You know, them old timers, they drop the one-liners on you and they just kind of walk off. And, and you, you know, you cook them for about the next two days. And you know what I'm saying? And it, nothing seemed to bother this guy. He just kind of cruised along, you know. And I kind of started to semi-trusting this guy. And what I did is I stood, what I did is I kind of stood behind him after the meetings to make sure that he was saying to people after the meetings the same thing he was saying in the meetings. You know what I'm saying? And finally, after about a month, uh, I could see that getting a sponsor was real important, so I kind of sneaked up to him and I said, uh, say, listen, uh, I understand it's uh, pretty important, there's something pretty important around here, and I was just wondering, would you be uh, kind of willing to be my sponsor? <laughs> and he allowed us how he'd love to. He said, well, he t- kind of talked like Reagan. <coughs> He said, well, if you're willing to agree to two things. And I said, well, what's that? What are these two things? He said, well, if you're willing to fulfill the conditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, meaning you work these steps, and if you're willing to follow some simple directions from me from time to time. (laughs) He was a salesman, you know what I mean? (laughs) So I agreed to this. I said, well, sure, it doesn't sound too tough to me. I mean, it was, must have been a year later before it dawned on me that he, by getting me to agree to those two things, he'd covered everything there is on earth, you know? I mean, it was like, uh, I've got to hurry up here and get into sobriety, you guys, because I did get sober and I don't drink and all that stuff. But anyway, uh, in my first year of sobriety, my solution to the first interpersonal problem I had in Alcoholics Anonymous, my solution is I got a bottle, of, a clear little bottle about just a little bit smaller than this glass. had one of the little plastic caps on it, and I got it filled with muriatic acid. And I was going to throw it in this guy's face. <laughs> She's over there going, what am I doing in this room with this guy? <laughs> but the sponsor had gotten me to agree to call him before I did anything. Serious. I assumed this, others might think this was serious. So I called him on the phone, and I told him, I run this whole story down to him, and I said, all right, so what do you think? He said, great plan. He said, that'll get him. No problem. He said, but I'm a little confused about something. And I said, well, what's that? And he says, well, what's the point? And I said, well, I want the guy to get off my back. He said, well, would you be willing to wait just one day while I think of some different way to get him to just get off your back? I said, well, all right, I'll call you tomorrow. (laughs) So now everybody in AA knew the game was over but me. See, I'm sitting sitting around for 24 hours relishing, watching this guy's face peel off, you know. (laughs) 
I mean, we were way beyond go read the next to the last story in the back of the big book and pray for him. We were way beyond that. I mean, we could have, that wouldn't have made no sense to me at all. So the next day, he, I called him up and he said, well, I got a solution for you. You might not like it. And if you don't, we'll think about it for another day. <laughs> he said, why don't you just put water in there and throw the water in his face and tell him what it could have been? I said, I'll have to think about that. I'll get back to you tomorrow. <laughs> well, to make a long story real short, after several phone calls and about four more days gone by, he said, you know, he said, in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the things you got to learn to do is to unemotionally confront unresolved situations. Why don't you just go up to this guy and tell him the truth? And by then, a whole week gone by, you know, and it made sense to me that I might go up and talk to this guy and tell him how I was feeling about what he was doing. And so I screwed together all this courage, and I went up to the guy, and I said, now, here's the deal. And I told him the whole deal. And you know what he did? He looked at me and says, I didn't know. I'm sorry. And I stood there like three kinds of an idiot thinking. <laughs> you know, I, I was getting ready to take this guy down, you know, over something he didn't even know. And in my head, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I have an overactive head. And it has been known to uh, uh, amplify things. It has been known to create problems where none exist, you know. And, uh, and there it was. Anyway, I had that same sponsor for, uh, oh God, almost 13 years. 12 and a half, 13 years. His name was Fred Ellis. And uh, some of you knew him. And some of you people who are a little newer are not ever going to get an opportunity to meet him. And that makes me real sad. You know, when I stop and think back about, uh, you know, the people who were important in my sobriety when I first showed up, you know, they're all gone now. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the great defenses against the disease of alcoholism is when you can acquire the ability to laugh at your own disease or more accurately, to laugh at the voice of your little disease. You all are aware that alcoholism comes packaged with a small voice, right? It can speak loud, it can whisper, it might even be very quiet for long periods of time. But don't you dare ever believe it's on vacation. <laughs> no, that's not what's happening. I was the, you know, I remember when I started practicing keeping my face straight, you know, when I was a kid. Well, that's when I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I couldn't, I didn't laugh around here for the first six months. I could not understand what you guys were cackling about. Somebody get up at the podium and say, God, I had a flat tire today and I swerved into this pole and I crashed the telephone pole and I got no job and my car's shot and my wife is leaving me and everybody going, oh, ho, 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 ho. <laughs> and I'm sitting down there thinking, this is a strange bunch. <laughs> but by God, they know how to not drink and that's what I want to know how to do. So I'm going to have to hang out with them even though they're a little weird. Okay. Well, it took about six months before Ellis figured this out, right? So then he took me to a Brentwood Thursday night meeting, and he stood me right next to Jack Bailey. <laughs> There's a couple of people here, and knew this guy could make a statue laugh. Well, here at, at this meeting, they had this big front porch, and I'd stand here, and this Jack Bailey'd stand here, and he'd start to tell a joke, and I'd start to. 
Well, that's no good, so I'd move about four steps to the left. Well, shit, he'd move right along with me. <laughs> he'd tell another joke. Well, the problem is you get down there far enough, you hit another wall, you can't go anywhere. And week after week, this guy kept on me, you know. And, uh, and he gave me the ability to laugh at that little voice in my head. And I've come to discover over the years that there are two things that will make that voice tone down right away. Number one is when you laugh at it. And number two is when you confront it with the truth. God, how it hates the truth. It just runs back in its little hole and it will cower there until it thinks it's safe to come out and attack you again, you know. And the real benefit here is if you just stick around here long enough, it'll stay in its little cave longer and longer and longer and longer until the point is, is that you kind of wake up one morning and uh, you just, you know, you're kind of cruising through life, you know, there just aren't any big deals anymore, you know. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the other things that somebody said to me, I think it was, uh, matter of fact, I know it was, it was a fellow named Walter Smith. And Walter's dead also. He had like 20, he had 24 years when I got sober. And he died, he had 36 years, that was a couple years ago. Or last year, I can't remember the statistics on it. But he's the one that said to me, John, if you'll just keep doing these simple little steps, the day will come where you will not only be able to act like a human being, but you will know what it is like to be one. And I knew he was full of beans. <laughs> I knew he was absolutely out picking cotton where there was corn, you know. <laughs> because I knew, I just knew that there was no way I could come back from where I'd been. No way. Well, one day at a time, little stuff goes along, this and that. And the next thing you know, uh, uh, I got to, I met a woman in Alcoholics Anonymous who got married. Got a daughter. She's trying to hide, but she's sitting right back there. She's 13 years old, and I love her to death. And I tell her, I better run that by you again. And I tell her, you know, just like a real live human being, see? And uh, about a year and a half later, uh, her mother and I had a son who was born, and he lived for three days, and he died. And you know, in this book, or you two don't know, but in this book, there's a little part there that says that the day will come when you have absolutely no mental defense against the next drink. Well, that day came, and I failed. I want to tell you that. I failed. I stood up in this hospital room, and I was trying to help my wife, because that's what men are supposed to do. You know, all my life, that's what I'd been taught. Men are supposed to identify the problem and solve it. Don't think about it, don't feel nothing about it, don't talk about it, just identify it and solve it. Well, I could identify the problem with my son, you know, he was behind a glass wall, only I couldn't solve the problem, it was very frustrating. Well, then the son died, and here's my wife, and she was not good. And so I could identify the problem, and I stayed there, and I tried to be comforting, and I tried to say things that I'd heard other people say. And, and uh, I mean, you got to understand, I'd only been sober about three years. I still wasn't feeling many things. I was still calling Ellis on the phone to ask him what, what I was feeling, <laughs> you know. And the whole time I was trying to help my wife, you know, I was kind of looking out the window, and across the street was a place called the Grotto Bar.
and the deal was done. You know, I'm saying there saying to myself, I've had enough of this stuff. I don't need this in my life. And as soon as she goes to sleep, I am out of here. And there wasn't going to be no discussion or any of that stuff. And the real truth is, is that when she finally went to sleep, I walked out and I got in the elevator. I went down to the ground floor and I was on my way. And as I was walking across the lobby, okay, two guys in Alcoholics Anonymous come walking in that were going to visit somebody else in the hospital. They didn't even know we were there. And thank God they're both very big. And they took one look at me, and one of them got on each side of me, and they took me out and put me in his car, and they hauled my ass over to the Culver City Clubhouse and took me to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And you want to know how Alcoholics Anonymous works. After the meeting, I got back to this apartment where I was living, where my wife and I were living. And that night, from 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock, the telephone rang twice. One was a couple from San Diego, California that I didn't know who were calling up to share their experience, strength, and hope because they'd had a child die. And no sooner than I hung up the phone, I got a telephone call from Stamford, Connecticut. There's another couple in Alcoholics Anonymous that had a child die. See, there is this bond that we have that nobody else on earth has. You know? There is this bond that we have that we share here. And it starts with a disease. Isn't that amazing? It starts with a disease. And then it grows to experience strength and hope. And the trust and the faith in God to be able to share with someone else your own experience, strength, and hope, unafraid. See? Anyway, God decided a second time that I ought to be sober. And from that moment to this, I take no credit whatsoever. It's really interesting. Um, within a year, my wife and I were divorced. And people used to come up to me and they'd say, well, gosh, you know, it's too bad that that was a mistake and so forth. And every time people say to me, gee, that was a mistake, I'd go over and look at my daughter. And God don't make mistakes. I make mistakes in judgment from time to time. I got a perception problem. <laughs> Comes along with alcoholism. <laughs> it's kind of tagged right along. <laughs> well, anyway, her mother and I were divorced, and that was real painful. And I went out there and jumped into relationships. And, and they kept failing, and I kept focusing on relationships and kept working the steps on relationships and this and that and the other thing. And, and finally one day it came to me like a bolt of lightning. The problem was not relationships at all. The problem was who I was picking to be in relationships with. I had to back it up a step, you know. And I had a bunch of old ideas in there that had to be dealt with. And they got all dealt with. And then one day I met my current wife. And uh, and I love her. And here's a rich. She loves me. And you want to hear the wildest part of this whole deal? I let her. <laughs> I don't do. Yeah, that's really great. <clears throat> you know, I don't have to do that butch shit anymore. Oh, not supposed to cuss up here. Everybody, wipe that. Okay. 
Uh, she and I had a son. He's seven and a half years old. Most people in life do not know what their children are going to grow up to be. I do know what my son is going to be. He's going to be a terrorist. <laughs> He's been practicing a couple of years now. I'm so grateful that God gave me a daughter first. <laughs> For lots of reasons. And somewhere, you know, it's interesting, somewhere over the years, too, it's like it's almost like the first five years it was like I kept asking for serenity. And the next five years I kept asking for courage. And now all I ask for is wisdom. See, the wisdom to know which of the two above categories this situation falls into. <laughs> See? And I've gotten to the point now where it's like... Uh, I tell people that I sponsor the same thing that uh, Fred Ellis told me. I tell them, listen, if you want me to be your sponsor, okay, you got to be willing to fulfill the conditions of the program Alcoholics Anonymous, and you got to be willing to follow just a little simple advice from me from time to time. And then I take a comma, I take a little breath, and I say, and I want you to understand that our job is to make me absolutely dispensable within a year. After we've worked those steps through, then you and I are going to be equal, then you and I are going to be friends. But no human power is going to get you sober or keep you that way. And the whole point of these 12 steps is for you to establish a relationship with a God of your very own that you can talk to like a friend. See? And I've come to discover that works really well. For me, it seems to work very well for people I sponsor. Now, if they were here, they'd tell you something different. <laughs> They're all just absolutely irritated that the one big complaint they have over and over and over and over again is John won't tell us what to do. And John won't tell nobody what to do because John barely knows what to do for me most of the time, you know. I just get up in the morning and I say, okay, God, we've got to do the left shoe first. Now, which one is it? <laughs> <laughs> And just think, you know, I'm only stupid now. If I just hang out here long enough and just stay sober long enough, I can get ignorant, you know. It'll be really great. I'm running out of time here. Uh, and there's a lot of important stuff i got to tell you. <laughs> so I'm going to wipe all that. And whatever comes in, that's what we're going to talk about. You know, the thing, I guess the other thing is, is that I've watched people run around espousing positions about what's the right way to work the program. And I've watched people run around espousing positions about how, what's the wrong way to work the program. And all I really want to tell you is, is that it doesn't matter who's right. And it doesn't matter who's wrong. It only matters who's left. See? I also want to tell you that over the years, somewhere along the line, I have learned that there is a difference between being right and being happy. And for most of my life, I had that all wrong. You know, in order to be happy, I had to be right. You know, it's like this friend of mine come to me here just uh, not too long ago, and he's newly married. Boy, if you want to learn how to work the steps, just go out there and get married. I'll tell you what. You can just crash course, no problem. <clears throat> but anyway, he come over to the house because of what she did. He was looking for an ally, you know. And I said, well, sit down here and tell me what she do. 
And so he told me. He said, well, she did this. And I said, well, what did you say? And he said, well, I said this. And then she said that. And did he do? And he finished up. He says, and I'm right, aren't I? And I said, well, I don't know about right, but I do have a suggestion for you. And he said, what's that? And I said, well, I want you to go home. I want you to sit down on the couch. I want you to take your wife's hand in both of your hands. I want you to look her right in the eye and say, honey, I'm a no good rotten son of a bitch, but I'm trying to get better. And he come about two feet off that couch. <laughs> he says, he said, you obviously didn't understand. <laughs> I said, well, I probably didn't. Tell me again. I'm sorry. He said, well, he, she said this, and then I said this, and then she said that, and I said this, and da 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 He said, by God, I'm right. I said, I got it this time. I got it. I recognize my mistake from before. I got it. He said, well, what will I do? What will I do? I said, great. You ready? He said, okay, what will I do? I said, I want you to go home. <laughs> I want to take your wife's hand and your two hands. I want you to look her right dead in the eye and say, honey, I'm a no good rotten son of a bitch, but I'm trying to get better. And he said, yeah, but. And I said, truth is, I said this. <laughs> Stuck in a room with dirty people again. That's amazing. I said, I don't want to hear any more of it. I want you to go home and follow these directions. And so he did. The next day, we're having coffee. He said, damn, this thing happened. I said, what's that? <laughs> he said, well, I went home and I did what you said. I took her hand of mine and looked her right now and said, honey, I'm a no good rotten son of a bitch. And I'm trying to do better. And she said, well, I didn't think I'd live to see you apologize. And it come in his head that he hadn't. Would I do that? <laughs> you bet your life I would. You bet your life. Anyway, I was going to talk about Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and I was going to talk about the steps. Uh, as a matter of fact, since I've driven all the way up here, I'm going to talk about the steps. Okay? There are 12 of them. They're in this book. They're numbered 1 through 12. For all of you who are new or all of you who have not worked them from 1 through 12, uh, that kind of stuff, my opinion of the steps is please work them. Now, um, what other opinion do I have to share with you here? Um, oh, I do have I do have some observations for all of you who are a little bit new. I want you to understand that we get lots of there's no shortage of newcomers in Alcoholics Anonymous, by the way. So this bogus stuff about you being the most important person here, forget it right away. What you need to know is is that you can arrive here too young, too smart, too good-looking, or have too much money. And if you got any one of them four things going against you, you're going to have to work twice as hard to stay. And I'd be remiss in my obligations if I didn't tell you that. I'd also, I'd also be remiss if I didn't tell you that we get a hundred people that show up in Alcoholics Anonymous and they love it and they feel really great and they get into working the steps and it goes like this. First step, second step, third step. Whoa! <laughs> they, those who go, whoa, get drunk. That's the way it is. 
And if you don't believe me, go to two meetings a day for the next six months and keep count on the people who come back. And you go right up to them and say, did you do your inventory? 100%. No. And besides that, it'll keep you around for six months just doing this survey, see? <laughs> it was only fair that I told them. You know, if I sponsored them, I'd have never told them that last part. Because you never give a newcomer an even break. Y'all got that? You never give alcoholism an even break. It never gave us one, did it? Okay. The other thing that happens is, is if you do write the inventory, then there's this probability you'll leap forward and do the fifth step, the sixth step, the seventh step, the eighth step. <laughs> but I'll never get that much money together in my whole life. <laughs> and furthermore, I'm not going to go apologize to that person. Don't woe down on nine. Don't woe on nine. You're just shorting out all those promises. And the last thing I want to tell you is, maybe I'll tell you another couple of things. i got three minutes. Um, one of the amends that I had when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous is I owed the Liquor Control Board of the state of Montana $38,000. By my third birthday, all my amends financially were paid off. And as a result of that, I've become very, very clear that God's got a lot of money. And every time I've ever needed a bag of it, it just shows up. It just shows up. <laughs> and everybody in this room is laughing but me. Because <laughs> what I just told you is the truth. God got a lot of money. And whenever I've ever needed any of it, a bag of it shows up. So I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to get all stove up about it. I don't have to go hold a meeting about it. I have to dig out my calendar and make a business action plan or any of that other foolishness. All I got to do is not drink and show up. <laughs> anyway, I'm almost done. I would like all of you to stay sober one day at a time. Because the day may come when I need some of the experience, strength, or hope you got. And if you're out drunk, I might not be able to find you. The bond that holds us together in Alcoholics Anonymous is like the uh, the greeting that they give to each other in India. See, in our society, we, language has stopped having any meaning. You know, no, none of us listen and everybody talks and that kind of stuff. And we say hello and this and that and it means nothing. But in certain parts of this world, they'll, they put their hands together like this and they'll bow and they'll say namaste. And it has a definition that applies to us. And the definition is, I honor that place inside of you of light. I honor that place inside of you of love. I honor that place inside of you where the entire universe resides. I honor that place inside of you where when you are in it, and I am in that place inside of me, there is only one of us. I love you. Thank you.